0: Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Mastry and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Monday, May the 2nd. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of the Gospel of St. John, chapter 6, verses 22 through 29. John six twenty-two through verses 29. In this particular reading, which comes from the chapter 6 of John's Gospel. It is usually referred to as the chapter of the bread of life discourse. It's one of the longest, if not the longest of discourses by Jesus, in which he discusses the bread of life. Now, the symbol of bread in the scriptures has two meanings. In the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, Bread was a symbol of God's wisdom, God's teaching, God's instruction, God's command, statues, and decrees. And so the people were nourished and fed by the bread of God's holy will, made known to them through Moses and the prophets, through the book of Psalms, the wisdom literature, and they were nourished by that as long as they obeyed the law of the Lord and stayed in faithful covenant with the Lord, they were nourished in their spirit, in the way in which they lived together, in the way in which they worshiped God. And this nourishment of God's holy wisdom, God's word, was also carried over into their everyday lives. By the way in which they lived with each other, especially within the family and within their local communities. They were nourished by the wisdom of God in the ways in which they dealt with each other with justice and mercy, with kindness and compassion, with understanding and forgiveness, and all of those things that really make for God's fruitful gift of peace The second way in which bread is understood in this particular chapter, the chapter of John, is that the bread is the very person of Jesus Christ. Now in the Christian scriptures, the New Testament, it will become the sacrament of the very body and blood of Christ as we read in chapter six, the whole of chapter six in the Bread of Life Discourse. Which Jesus says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood is life eternal, and I will raise him on the last day. And in preparation for this Bread of Life discourse, Jesus, in chapter 6 of John, feeds the multitude, feeds the 5,000 with the food. And the people then began to look for Jesus because they have they have been fed, they've been hungry. Remember, they were following him all day. And uh, they said uh, to Jesus, Rabbi, uh, wh- where did you go? How did you get here? Uh, we looked for you and we couldn't find you. And Jesus says to them, I assure you, you are not looking for me because you have seen signs but because you have eaten your fill of the loaves. In other words, you had your material needs met, your biological needs. You were hungry, and through the multiplication of the loaves and the fish, you had something to eat. But he goes on and he says, you should not be working for perishable food, but the food that remains until life eternal." Because Jesus comes to give us food beyond the biological food. We eat at breakfast, and we're looking for lunch. We eat at lunch, and we're looking for supper. And some look for snacks later on. But that perishable food is just that. We change it, we break it down in our bodies, and so on. All very necessary things. But there is an eternal food a food which nourishes the soul and the spirit, the food unto eternal life. And that is the very gift of Jesus himself, the food that will last forever. For that food, we do not transform that food. That food transforms us, changes us at the very core and center of our being. Through that food, We grow ever closer in communion with Almighty God. It's food unto eternal life. And they ask him, what must we do uh, in order to perform the works of God? For Jesus says, his food is to do the will of the Father. That's, That's the food of Jesus, because that's why he came to do the will of the Father, which is to forgive us our sins, reconcile us to God through his death and resurrection. We are in the third week of Easter. And so uh, they they want that food forever. But again, they're still not quite understanding the full meaning of that. And so Jesus says, the food which the Son of Man will give you it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. On Jesus, Jesus will give the food. Oh, and they say, well, what must we do to perform the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God. Have faith in the one whom he sent. In other words, we don't seek Jesus just because he supplies our bodily needs. We don't just seek God. In Jesus, just because he meets our basic needs. Because we are called for more than that. Because we are not simply biological or material entities. We are spiritual beings as well. We have an immortal soul, which must be nourished as well. And that is found in the person of Jesus, who says have faith in the one whom he sent. faith in Jesus. When we receive the Body and Blood of Christ at the Eucharist, when we are nourished by the Gospel, we are receiving the food of eternal life that changes us, not simply biological and physical, but that which is unto life eternal in very communion, communion, in union with, in oneness with Jesus. That's the food of eternal life. That's the food we are really called to seek with our whole heart and soul, our mind and our strength, our whole being. For this, this body of ours, temporal, fragile, will one day die but it's meant for resurrection. It's meant to be glorified like the body of Christ. And that nourishment that we receive prepares us for that, nourishes us for that. And if we read the uh, Our Father and we pray the Our Father, which we pray, not race through or just Our Father, what in heaven, hallowed be thy name, but we really Pray and consider the words, the seven petitions in the Alphaba. One is very important, isn't it? Give us today our daily bread. Our daily bread, not the bread of yesterday, it's stale. Not the bread of tomorrow, it hasn't been baked yet. The bread that we have is the bread today. What is the Lord telling us Today? What is God nourishing us for today, to be and to do in our daily lives? That's, that, that's the nourishment we need. It's the only nourishment we have. It's the only nourishment that we face is that day. Too many people live for the old stale bread of yesterday, they can't wait to get to the bread of tomorrow, and they miss the need for the bread that's offered to us today, this very day. And following that, it says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Part of the daily bread, an essential part, is forgiveness. God has forgiven us in Jesus, and part of our daily bread, an essential part, is that we forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven us. Be merciful that we may be shown and have been shown mercy. That's our daily bread. It's our daily bread as well. So let us today seek Jesus, not because of our material well-being, not because we are nourished with food that perishes, but the food of eternal life, the food that Jesus gives us. For his flesh is real food, his blood real drink. His holy gospel is the true word of eternal life. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Mastry, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Tuesday of the third week of Easter, May the 3rd. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of Acts of the Apostles, chapter 7, verses 51 through verse 8. Chapter chapter 7, verse 51 to chapter 8, verse 1. The reading this morning brings us in contact with St. Stephen, Stephen, who is the first of the Christian martyrs recorded in the New Testament, in the Acts of the Apostles, Stephen was also and is the patron of deacons in the Catholic Church. Deacons are those ordained as clerics in service to the Church and to God's people in various forms and various ways. And Stephen... Uh, an early follower of Christ, and one who was chosen to be a deacon, one who was devoted to service in the church. And Stephen really is what we might call a saint for all seasons, for all people, because an important component of the Christian life and of following Christ is one of service. That is, denying oneself forgetting oneself, self-denial, and extending oneself for others in imitation of Christ, who is the supreme servant. For behold, I am in your midst, Jesus says, as one who serves. And so at the heart of the Christian life is that of service. And we are born, from the time we come out of the womb, we are self-centered, we want what we want immediately. We want to be fed, we want to be changed, we want to be picked up, we want to be uh, uh, taken care of. And the rest of our life is a life of learning to deal with others, that we are in a world with others, not simply ourselves. And hopefully, in time, we learn that we are also called to be for others, not merely to live only for ourselves, a universe of one. But in fact, we live with many, with others and for others, which requires that we accept the words of Jesus. Anyone who wishes to follow me must deny his very self, pick up his cross daily, and follow me. And so it is in that daily denial of ourselves and placing ourselves in service of others, the gift that we give, the most important gift, is the gift of ourself. It doesn't come in the catalog or on one of the shopping channels. It is, it's something from our heart, from our being, when we extend ourselves, not merely for ourselves. But for others. It may be those in our family, which is very important. It may be those with whom we work or go to school, interact in the neighborhood, etc. And at times, it is the stranger, the hidden presence of Christ, who may appear and need our assistance, however great or however small, within our ability, naturally, prudently but we are to extend ourselves, to pour ourselves out. And in doing so, we are imitating Christ, and in doing so, we receive. For each and every one of us is alive because others because others have poured themselves out on our behalf, beginning with our parents, our mother, our father, and all those who have helped us to be who and what we are today. And this idea of dying to ourselves is very difficult today. For today we are so self-centered. We live in a culture and in a time where it's I, my, me. But we have to learn a new vocabulary throughout our life. We, ours, and us. It's a very difficult vocabulary to learn. It's one of the most difficult uh, languages to learn. And it's, it's very difficult. Because again, that focus on the self. And each of us is called through our baptism to be of service to others. And one may say, well, I'm infirmed. I'm not able to be of service to others. I'm housebound. I'm shut in. You have a tremendous opportunity to serve, one of the greatest opportunities. It is through prayer, the time that you may be in confinement. Think of all those whom you can pray, beginning with the souls in purgatory, those who have no one to pray with them or for them this day, those who are in need of the forgiveness of their sins, who are in need of conversion, those who are suffering, who have no one to pray for them, those who are running low on resources. Pray for the church, for it is also a time of persecution, a time in which the blood of the martyrs in many parts of the world continues to be spilled. That The church is strengthened and that they are strengthened in their witness and inspire others to remain faithful. The list is endless, and what a tremendous service we can render from our hospital bed, from our home confinement, from our own inability to move about and to do other things. But we can be of service, the service of prayer, Again, for those who have no one to pray with them or for them this day, think of all the people who do not have the blessing of prayer. And what a tremendous service to lift those who have no one uh, to the throne of Almighty God. And yet, and it's a great act of faith because we don't know the results, we don't see them, but they are taken into the very mind and the very presence of God. And so are we. So we can serve, regardless of our circumstance, in the service of prayer. And we die to ourselves each day in the normal course of life, doing for others more than just for ourselves, extending ourselves, answering the phone and spending a few minutes with someone who is in need of a friendly voice, a wise word, perhaps a word of correction, a word of guidance, a word of comfort. Uh, So many ways in which we are called to extend ourselves, to break out of that isolated world of self into the world of others and for others. So let us today imitate and contemplate the great witness of St. Stephen, who is very much a Christ figure, for he is—he refuses to deny Christ. He continues to affirm his belief that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah, and he is stoned to death. And as the stones begin to fly, Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he cries out, Look, I see an opening in the sky, and the Son of Man standing at God's right hand. And the onlookers were shouting aloud, holding their hands over their ears, as they did so. They did not want to hear any of that. That's what the world does. The world closes its eyes and its ears, closes its minds and its hearts, And Stephen, as he was being stoned, he says, Lord, receive my spirit. Do not hold this sin against them. Echoing the words of Christ on Good Friday, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus commends his spirit to the Father as Stephen commends his spirit. So each day, Let us be of service, some way to extend ourselves today from prayer to some act of charity for people known and unknown. In so doing, we follow Christ in the deepest of ways. May we be one with Stephen in denying ourselves so that we may truly find ourselves. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Astry, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Wednesday of the third week of Easter, May the 4th. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of continuation of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And in this particular episode of Luke's account of the early church, and the activities of the Apostles, mainly St. Peter and St. Paul. In this particular episode, St. Luke records the persecutions that were increasing throughout Jerusalem and in the surrounding regions by the religious authorities uh, under the uh, acquiescence of the Roman authorities both of which had an interest in squelching this uh, way of following Jesus and the disciples, especially the apostolic preaching of uh, St. Paul and uh, St. Peter. But of course, St. Paul starts out as Saul and leading the persecutions in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem was one named Saul, for before Paul was Paul, he was Saul. And he was a devout Jew who saw the Christians, the followers of the way, the followers of Jesus, as a great threat to the religious establishment and to all that he had been uh, devoted to. He was a zealot, a zealot for the law of Moses and for the... uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, and did not see Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. And there was a great deal of persecutions taking place. And so what happened was the church community at Jerusalem began to be scattered. They were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. and. After the death of Stephen, and Acts of the Apostles tells us that uh, some devout men buried Stephen, and after that, the church was harassed, was persecuted, and leading the persecution was one named Saul, who also oversaw the execution, the stoning of Stephen, because they had laid their cloaks at the feet of one named Saul, and house after house was entered into, and men and women were dragged out and thrown into jail for professing Jesus. And members of the church who had been dispersed because of the persecution, they went about preaching the word. And one of the examples of someone who was quite faithful is one of the uh, apostles Peter, uh, Philip, who went about throughout Samaria proclaiming the Messiah, and when the crowds heard Philip and saw the miracles he performed, uh, they attended closely to what he had to say. And many were coming over to the church, coming over to Christ. He also cured many of the paralytics, the cripples, Uh, He also exercised demons, and uh, people were becoming increasingly excited in the face of the persecution. Instead of persecutions uh, eliminating the fervor of the people, getting rid of this name of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, it only increased their numbers and their devotion and determination their perseverance in the face of persecution. Persecutions often increase perseverance. And that's exactly what happened in the early church. The seed of the church is planted by the martyrs, watered by the blood of the martyrs. That inspires others in their weakness and in their fear to become bold, especially through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so it was in the early church. But we know that in time, in time, the persecutions will cease because God will not be defeated by evil and by human beings being used as instruments of the evil one. And the church begins to spread But we see Saul, Saul at this particular point, before he meets the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, he is very, very devout in his belief. He is sincere. There's no question about that. He believes that he is doing the right thing. He believes that he is, in fact, being faithful to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew Scriptures, and to the teachings that he has learned uh, and uh, but when he meets the Lord on the road to Damascus and he has his conversion experience, he then becomes the great apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle to the world whom the Lord has chosen. The Lord chooses one who persecuted to become one who is the great evangelizer and the one who his past is not greater than his future, not when God's future is allowed to unfold. And so it is with us, isn't it? We may have a past. We may have a time when we persecuted the church. And what we mean by that, of course, is is that we turned away from Christ and from the church. Uh, We became indifferent. Uh, We may even have uh, had very uh, bad things to say about the church, about Christ, from we don't believe in any of that to criticizing and to uh, shunning anything having to do with the Christian faith, even though one may have been baptized, born in the church, raised in the church. Uh, We know people who have turned away from the church for various reasons, but they have turned away from the church. That's exactly the people who, when they re-enter, when once again they open themselves to be touched by the Holy Spirit and by Christ, they often become the greatest of witnesses. And I think that that's important for us because it reminds us once again that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. And we can't despair or give up on ourselves or on God, especially Almighty God, for God has a special desire, a special place for those who have turned away. For Jesus' time and again says, Heaven rejoices over one repentant sinner than over the 99 who have no need of repentance. We should never give up, we should never let our past be greater than our future. We have no idea when and how the Lord will touch us in that special way, to where we turn away from our past. Therefore, we should never despair, we should never become despondent, or believe that we are beyond the reach of God's mercy and God's forgiveness. That each and every day, the Lord calls us again and again and again, that no matter how many times we may fall and stumble, even lay prostrate, how many times the winds, waves, and torrents that swirl within us and all around us may wash over us, Jesus is in the midst of it all, inviting us to come to him, to not be afraid and accept forgiveness and mercy. That is almighty God's extension to us, an invitation each and every day. For when we sin, we fall short of the glory of God, but we never fall so far as to be beyond the reach of God's mercy and God's forgiveness. And God and heaven's celebration, when we turn away from the evil one, and from our past and walk into God's future. Each and every day, God opens for us the future and invites us to come. Come and follow Jesus. Come and walk in his path. Follow him, for God's future is infinitely larger and wider and deeper than our past. It requires of us a surrender, a contrite heart, a true repentance of our sins, and then we walk into that newness of life that Jesus Christ offers to each and every one of us each day. May we not be paralyzed by fear. May we not be overcome by guilt and sin, for God is greater, and God waits to celebrate each and every sinner's return to the Father's house. God bless you, and may we encourage one another to always walk faithfully in our Lord, and when necessary, to turn to him, for he will welcome us with open arms. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Aestri, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Wednesday of the third week of Easter, May the 4th. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of continuation of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And in this particular episode of Luke's account of the early church and the activities of the apostles, mainly St. Peter and St. Paul. In this particular episode, St. Luke records the persecutions that were increasing throughout Jerusalem and in the surrounding regions by the religious authorities uh, under the uh, acquiescence of the Roman authorities, both of which had an interest in squelching this uh, way of following Jesus and the disciples, especially the apostolic preaching of uh, St. Paul and uh, St. Peter. But of course, St. Paul starts out as Saul, and leading the persecutions in Jerusalem the church in Jerusalem, was one named Saul. For before Paul was Paul, he was Saul. And he was a devout Jew who saw the Christians, the followers of the way, the followers of Jesus, as a great threat to the religious establishment and to all that he had been uh, devoted to. He was a zealot a zealot for the law of Moses, and for the the Hebrew Scriptures, and did not see Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. And there was a great deal of persecutions taking place. And so what happened was the church community at Jerusalem began to be scattered. They were scattered throughout the countryside, of Judea and Samaria. And after the death of Stephen, and Acts of the Apostles tells us that uh, some devout men buried Stephen. And after that, the church was harassed, was persecuted. And leading the persecution was one named Saul, who also oversaw the execution, the stoning. Of Stephen, because they had laid their cloaks at the feet of one named Saul. And house after house was entered into, and men and women were dragged out and thrown into jail for professing Jesus. And members of the church who had been dispersed because of the persecution, they went about preaching the word. And one of the examples of someone who was quite faithful, is one of the uh, apostles, uh, Philip, who went about throughout Samaria proclaiming the Messiah. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the miracles he performed, uh, they attended closely to what he had to say. And many were coming over to the church, coming over to Christ, He also cured many of the paralytics, the cripples. Uh, He also exercised demons. And uh, people were becoming increasingly excited in the face of the persecution. Instead of persecutions uh, eliminating the fervor of the people, getting rid of this name of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, it only increased their numbers and their devotion and determination, their perseverance in the face of persecution. Persecutions often increase perseverance. And that's exactly what happened in the early church. The seed of the church is planted by the martyrs, watered by the blood of the martyrs. That inspires others in their weakness and in their fear, to become bold, especially through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so it was in the early church. But we know that in time, in time, the persecutions will cease because God will not be defeated by evil and by human beings being used as instruments of the evil one and the church begins to spread. But we see Saul, Saul at this particular point before he meets the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. He is very, very devout in his belief. He is sincere. There's no question about that. He believes that he is doing the right thing. He believes that he is, in fact, being faithful to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew Scriptures and to the teachings that he has learned. Uh, uh, But when he meets the Lord on the road to Damascus, and he has his conversion experience, he then becomes the great apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle to the world whom the Lord has chosen. The Lord chooses one who persecuted to become one who is the great evangelizer and the one who... His past is not greater than his future, not when God's future is allowed to unfold. And so it is with us, isn't it? We may have a past. We may have a time when we persecuted the church. And what we mean by that, of course, is is that we turned away from Christ and from the church. Uh, We became indifferent Uh, We may even have uh, had very uh, bad things to say about the church, about Christ, from we don't believe in any of that to criticizing and to uh, shunning anything having to do with the Christian faith, even though one may have been baptized, born in the church, raised in the church. Uh, We know people who have turned away from the church for various reasons, but they have turned away from the church. That's exactly the people who, when they re-enter, when once again they open themselves to be touched by the Holy Spirit and by Christ, they often become the greatest of witnesses. And I think that that's important for us because it reminds us once again that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. And we can't despair or give up on ourselves or on God, especially Almighty God. For God has a special desire, a special place for those who have turned away. For Jesus time and again says, heaven rejoices over one repentant sinner than over the 99 who have no need of repentance We should never give up. We should never let our past be greater than our future. We have no idea when and how the Lord will touch us in that special way to where we turn away from our past. Therefore, we should never despair. We should never become despondent or believe that we are beyond the reach of God's mercy and God's forgiveness. That each and every day, the Lord calls us again and again and again, that no no matter how many times we may fall and stumble, even lay prostrate, how many times the winds, waves, and torrents that swirl within us and all around us may wash over us, Jesus is in the midst of it all, inviting us to come to him, to not be afraid and accept forgiveness and mercy. That is almighty God's extension to us, an invitation each and every day. For when we sin, we fall short of the glory of God, but we never fall so far as to be beyond the reach of God's mercy and God's forgiveness. And God and heaven's celebration when we turn away from the evil one and from our past and walk into God's future. Each and every day, God opens for us the future and invites us to come. Come and follow Jesus, come and walk in his path, follow him, for God's future is infinitely larger and wider and deeper than our past. It requires of us A surrender, a contrite heart, true repentance of our sins, and then we walk into that newness of life that Jesus Christ offers to each and every one of us each day. May we not be paralyzed by fear. May we not be overcome by guilt and sin, for God is greater, and God waits to celebrate each and every sinner's return to the Father's house. God bless you, and may we encourage one another to always walk faithfully in our Lord, and when necessary, to turn to him, for he will welcome us with open arms. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Mastry, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Thursday, May the 5th, the third week of Easter. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of a continuation of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. And in this particular episode, in Acts of the Apostles, once again we encounter Philip, who is becoming more and more prominent as an apostle and an evangelist in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, the Promised One. And Philip uh, receives a message from the angel of the Lord And Philip is told to head south towards the road which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. And he is to take the desert route. And as Philip begins his journey, he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, this Ethiopian eunuch was an official in the court. And he was in charge of the entire treasury of Candace. Uh, a name which means queen of the Ethiopians. And he had come on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and he was returning home. And he was sitting in his carriage, this Ethiopian eunuch, and uh, he is reading a scripture passage from the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit of the Lord says to Philip, go and catch up with that carriage. So Philip does what the Holy Spirit told him to do. And he notices that the man is reading from the prophet Isaiah and he says, do you really grasp what you are reading? You understand it. And the man, the eunuch, replies, "Um, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So he's reading it but he's reading without understanding. But there's something in there that has attracted his attention, and it is a passage that, obviously, the Holy Spirit has directed him to read, and Philip has been sent by the Holy Spirit. Philip will serve as his teacher. He will open to him the meaning of the word. And as the eunuch says, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? And this eunuch, this well-connected court official in charge of the entire treasury of the region, he invited Peter to get in and sit down beside him. And the passage that he was reading is as follows. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter Like a lamb before its shears, he was silent, and opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who will ever speak of his posterity? For he is deprived of his life on earth. Now, of course, we know that that particular passage from Isaiah, which is read during Good Friday, refers, of course, to Jesus, the suffering servant, the innocent lamb, who takes upon himself our sins and the sins of the world, our guilt, and the guilt of the world, and takes it to the cross on Good Friday. And the eunuch says to Philip, tell me, if you will, of whom the prophet says this. Is he speaking of himself or someone else? And then, the man, this eunuch, has opened the door. He's opened the door. He's a good man. He's gone on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He's reading the scriptures, but he needs someone to teach him, someone to open the scriptures for him. And the Lord has sent him, Philip, to do just that. And so Philip begins to teach him about the scriptures, and he tells him the good news of Jesus, and as they move along the road, uh, they come to some water, and the eunuch, now having been taught the scriptures, the scriptures opened to him by Philip, he says, look, there's some water. What is to keep me from being baptized? He ordered the carriage to be stopped, and Philip went down in the water with the eunuch and baptized him. When he came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. Nevertheless, the man went on his way rejoicing. What a beautiful passage, isn't it? And it's a very important one for us. For each day, we are called to share in the work of Philip. We are called to open the scriptures, read the scriptures first of all, to study them. For the Lord may provide us with the opportunity to explain the scriptures to someone to open the scriptures for them and be able to teach them that they may come to know in a deeper way the Lord. We never know when this might happen. It might happen today, next week, next year, if the Lord gives us all that time. But nonetheless, we will be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ, having studied and prayed the scriptures each day we have that great, great blessing that we have the scriptures before us. We can read, we can study, we can obtain various books and commentaries about scripture, so that we grow into a deeper nourishment and understanding of God's holy word. Not simply for ourselves, but also for others, in effect, We are called to be evangelists. We are called to be teachers in our own way, however limited. Let the Holy Spirit guide us that we may indeed fulfill that great ministry, the ministry of teaching, that each of us God may call one day, somehow, to someone, unbeknownst to us at this moment, that we can open the word of God for them. What a tremendous blessing that is for them and also for us. And that uh, Philip, uh, after having been led away from the eunuch by the Holy Spirit, he comes to uh, a town and he goes about announcing the good news in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. In other words, he continued his ministry. He continued proclaiming and teaching all about the Word of God. And that eunuch, no doubt, now baptized and rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, how many will he influence and how many will he touch? It's like the stone thrown in the middle of the pond. After it plops into the water, the, the ripples, they spread out, and we don't know where they will stop and where their influence and their effects will be felt. Almighty God will take care of that. So let us today have the opportunity and take that opportunity to share the word of God with others. They may open the door for us. They may see us reading the scriptures and ask what we're doing, That will be an opportunity for us to share the word of God and share in our great, great call to be messengers and teachers of God's holy word. May we be ever ready to be a vessel of God's holy word. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Mastry, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet, for Friday of the third week of of Easter, May the 6th. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of a continuation of Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. And in this particular episode, we encounter one of the most Dramatic of all the scenes in the entire scriptures, it is St. Paul, now called Saul, on the road to Damascus and his encounter with the risen Lord who speaks to him from heaven. This is after the ascension. And Saul, who has been breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, remember, he is the one who supervised the uh, stoning, the killing of the first recognized church martyr, Christian church martyr, Stephen. They laid their cloaks at the feet of one named Saul. Saul is very committed, he's a very good Jew. He's zealous for the law of the Hebrew scriptures, the law of Moses, and all of the traditions that went with the people up to that particular time. And he perceives these people of the way, as they were first called, the followers of Jesus, the way. And uh, he has been persecuting them to such an extent that the Christians, they will be called Christians, as we'll see in a moment, but those of the way uh, in Jerusalem and they have dispersed throughout various other regions to get away from uh Paul from Saul and his uh, murderous intent and so he goes to the synagogue and he asks for letters uh in Damascus that what he can do is he can arrest and put in jail anyone he might find man or woman Uh, in Jerusalem, who has uh, followed the way, the way of Jesus. And so he wants to go to Damascus, so he's coming to Damascus to get these particular letters of approval for this. And so as he's traveling along on his way to Damascus, a light from the sky suddenly flashes about him. He fell to the ground, and at the same time, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? In other words, the voice is making the connection that those who are following the way, those who are following Jesus the Lord, that there is such a communion, a union, a oneness between the followers of the way and Christ himself, that to persecute them is to persecute Christ himself. And so he uh, falls to the ground, and uh, he says, uh, who are you, sir, to this voice, because he doesn't see anyone. He just hears this voice. The voice answered, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Get up and go into the city, Damascus, where you will be told what to do. And there were men who were traveling with him, traveling with uh, Saul. And uh, they stood speechless because they heard the voice, but they could see no one. Saul gets up from the ground, but he is unable to see. His eyes are opened, but he cannot see. And they had to take him by the hand and lead him into Damascus. And when he gets there, he finds a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, whom the Lord has appeared to in our vision and said, Ananias, and Ananias says, here I am, Lord. Remember, that's the, that's the fateful standard way of responding when the Lord calls. Here I am. In other words, I come to do your will. And he tells Ananias, he says, go at once to Straight Street, to the house of Judas, and ask for a certain Saul of Tarsus. He is there praying. Uh, Saul saw in a vision a man named Ananias coming to him and placing his hands on him that he might recover his sight. So Paul, has, Saul has been given this vision, but Ananias says, but Lord, I've heard from many sources that this man, Saul, uh, and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, he now has authorization from the chief priest to arrest anyone who would invoke your name. The Lord said to him, to Ananias, you must go. This man is the instrument I have chosen to bring my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I myself shall indicate to him how much he will have to suffer for my name. In other words, Saul will have to suffer for the name of Jesus, for he is going to be the apostle to the world, the apostle to the Gentiles, to the Jews to those in high places, the religious and civil authorities. But he will suffer for this, as we know from reading the letters of Paul. And so uh, he goes, and uh, Ananias leaves. And when he entered the house, he laid his hands on Saul. And he says, Saul, my brother, I have been sent by the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the way here to help you recover your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. You'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. He got up, Saul got up, was baptized, and strength returned to him as he had found food. Saul stayed some time with the disciples in Damascus and soon began to proclaim in the synagogue that Jesus was the Son of God and it is there that they began to be called Christians. They began to be called Christians, followers of Christ. We see this tremendous conversion of Paul, this encounter with the Lord Jesus, the one who had been responsible And had led the first martyrdom. But God, in His wisdom and in His plan, has chosen Saul to become the great evangelist, the great preacher and teacher to the world. He will become St. Paul. And it's an indication, isn't it? First of all, that the close connection between the church, the body of Christ, the followers of Christ who are being persecuted as they are today in many parts of the world and in our own country in various ways. People of faith are persecuted and ridiculed, ostracized and, and, and looked upon with scorn and looked upon as dangerous even in some quarters by our government and by just uh, people in the street who have a very poor uh, opinion and hostility towards Christianity, toward the name of Jesus. And around the world, people are suffering, places like China, the Middle East, North Korea, Russia, parts of Latin America, around the world, for dare daring to proclaim the word of Jesus, the gospel. And that close connection, Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That is the connection between Jesus and the faithful, the church, the body of Christ. And the idea that almighty God, in his wisdom and in his grace, he selects Saul, the one who was responsible for for the very persecutions that are taking place so badly that there was this great exodus out of Jerusalem of those who were formerly following the law of Moses but had come over to follow Christ, that they are being persecuted, that they had to move to various regions outside of Jerusalem. And there's Saul. Uh, has his letters of authority from the authorities in Damascus, the religious authorities, and yet God says, "That's going to be my vessel," which reminds us that in our own sinfulness, in our own waywardness, the Lord calls us. The Lord calls, not not the not the righteous, although He does that as well but he's always looking for those who have once been great sinners, great persecutors, to come forth. And at their conversion, they become great saints, great examples and inspirations and encouragements for others. Not to let your past be your future. Yes, sin has been done. Evil has been done. But with almighty God, all things are possible. And in our own lives, even though we may have strayed from the church, we may have sinned in the past, we may be weighed down by guilt. God's mercy, forgiveness, God's grace is far deeper and greater and more lasting than our own sinfulness if we just open our minds and our hearts to Almighty God, seek mercy and forgiveness, be willing to convert, to repent, and to reform our lives by God's grace. The scales from our eyes, the hardness of our hearts, the scales can fall away, the hardness of our heart can be melted, so we have a responsive, eager heart to do the will of God. It is a dramatic, dramatic episode, not only for Saul and for the uh, followers of the way, the Christians at that time, but for each and every one of us today. So let us have the scales removed, our stone and marble and steel encased hearts, melted, so that the Holy Spirit may come and indwell in us and we may be evangelists and proclaimers and encourage and invite others to follow the Lord Jesus this day and every day that the Lord Jesus may grant us and call us to be great evangelists for the gospel, the word, of eternal life. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Astry, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Saturday of the third week of Easter, May the 7th. Our reading this morning comes to us by a continuation of Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, verses 31 through 42. Acts chapter 9, verses 31 through 42, and our reading this morning is quite dramatic, but it is the drama of God's presence in the world today, in our own lives, and in those around us, and the, this particular passage opens with, throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, the church was at peace, it was being built up with making steady progress in the fear of the lord that is the awe of almighty god's presence and the working of the lord in the holy spirit and at the same time it enjoyed the increased consolation of the holy spirit that's a magnificent beginning the church was at peace for the past several days, we have been discussing various persecutions, imprisonments. We yesterday discussed the conversion of St. Paul and his murderous attempt to gather up those who were following Jesus and place them under arrest, except he met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he was converted by encountering Christ. And being designated as the one who would be the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle to the whole world, the whole world known at that time in preaching the gospel. And so, finally, the persecutions began to stop. The people are becoming more and more attuned to the Holy Spirit and are following Christ. And the Holy Spirit is present And there is peace in the church, and more and more people are coming to follow the way, as the early Christians were called, members of the way. And it was being built up in the Holy Spirit. And our reading this morning also concerns Peter, who was also engaged in a great deal of uh, making visits and journeys throughout the region, And list all the places, and Peter comes to one particular place, God's holy people living at Lydda, and uh, he found a man there named Aeneas. He was a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years, and Peter comes to him at the request of the people, and he says to them, He says, uh, you know, he will go and see. And he says, when he gets there to Aeneas, he says, Jesus Christ cures you. Get up and make your bed. The man got up at once. All the inhabitants of Lydda and Sharon, upon seeing him, were converted to the Lord. Now, Few of us, of course, will be engaged in such a dramatic event. And yet at the same time, in our own daily lives, we encounter people who have been paralyzed, not only physically, but in a deeper level, spiritually. They're paralyzed by fear, by anxiety. They're paralyzed and weighed down and burdened by their past, the sins they have committed, the guilt that weighs heavy on their hearts and in their conscience. And too often, sadly, many of those people believe that Almighty God has turned from them and wants nothing to do with them. And so they live in a kind of walking despair, a kind of hopelessness. And so they believe that God has no mercy for them, no forgiveness. And what they need is someone like Peter, someone like each one of us, in our own lives, to offer assurance through our words and through our actions, through the opening of scripture, to inviting them back to the sacrament of reconciliation, the sacrament of penance, to open themselves to the mercy of God For God's mercy is infinitely deeper and wider and longer than any sins we can commit. The only sin, Jesus says, that is unforgiven is the sin when we refuse to be forgiven. God will not force us to be forgiven. God does not force his mercy upon us. God does not kick down the door that locks our heart. It is up to us to open the door from the inside. Jesus says, I knock at the door. And we have to open the door. We have to turn the inside of our own hearts and believe that the Lord wants to enter because he does, wants to heal us because he will, and that God will not condemn us because he won't. He will offer us healing and mercy and forgiveness. But it is up to us to seek that, to open that, because the Lord seeks us. And when the Lord finds us, that's when it falls to us to open ourselves to him. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That's the very reason why Jesus came we're in the holy season of Easter, the risen Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit and the burdens of the past, the fear, the anxiety, the hopelessness can be lifted, will be lifted, is lifted by the very presence of Christ, crucified and risen in the Holy Spirit and says to us, Peace be with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives it, but as I give it. That is a true and lasting peace that is ours for the asking. So each day, let us open our own selves first of all and beseech the Lord's mercy and forgiveness so that heaven may rejoice, as Jesus said, over one repentant sinner, and over the 99 who have no need of repentance. And let us also be ever ready to serve as the Lord may call upon us to speak to those who are near to us, those may be in our own families, our associations, our friends, who are burdened and heavy laden, for they will find rest and peace in the person of Christ if they but open their hearts. And we can serve as God's vessels of that so that Peter's words to Aeneas, Jesus Christ cures you. Get up and make your bed. Those words are still present to those around us and to our own selves. Jesus Christ cures you. Get up and make your bed. Get up and live. Get up and live each day to the glory of God, the life that God has entrusted to you. What a great blessing. We can also be forgiven, and we can be a vessel of God's forgiveness to others. May God's work on earth truly be our own each day. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Maestri, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Sunday, may the eighth, Mother's Day. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of the Gospel of Saint Matthew, chapter one, verses eighteen through twenty three. Gospel of Matthew, chapter one, verses eighteen through twenty three. Today is, of course, Mother's Day, in which we remember and commend to the Lord our mothers, living and dead. It is also the day in which, in a special way, we need, especially at this time in our history and in the life of our country and of our culture, the importance of mothers and the importance of motherhood. Unfortunately, in recent decades, if not longer, we have grown to increasingly disvalue the notion of mothers, of motherhood, and basically of women in general. We have, unfortunately, lost the value and the speciality of mothers and the vocation and the call by God To be a mother. One of the most powerful images throughout the Bible in trying to explain to us God's love is the comparing of God's love to that of a mother for her child. It is a nurturing love. Mothers, women nurture their children, the child, as no man can as no other human being other than women and mothers can. From the moment of conception, that is a living human being inside of the mother to be nurtured and to be cared for and to bring to birth into the world, a new human being made in the image and likeness of God, filled with an immortal soul, And a mother's love is that special love present from the beginning, from the very moment of conception, as God's gift. And that's why human beings, they do not reproduce. Human beings procreate a husband and wife, a man and a woman, in the marital act of love, of giving and receiving each other completely. It is a procreation, creation with, creation with Almighty God, because every life is a gift filled with an immortal soul made in the image and likeness of God. And it is through the nuptial love of husband and wife for each other. That's what love does, nuptial love and all-fruitful love is open to life, to the reception of life, to the welcoming of life, to the glory, praise, and thanksgiving of Almighty God for the gift of life. And a mother's love is also enduring and faithful. No matter what happens to that child, no matter the roads, the paths the child may take, a mother's love is forever. There's always something there that's beyond explanation, beyond our rational categories. It is an enduring, faithful love, as God's love is. And one can always turn to mother for understanding, for correction, correction in love, because mothers always want what is best for their child want them to grow up to be good and strong and straight and true and pure. All of those things is in a mother from the very beginning. mother's love is unconditional. No matter what, a mother is a mother. It is a sacrificial love. Mothers sacrifice so much every day and continue to sacrifice for their children, such as a mother's love. A mother's love also notes sorrow when a child may take a wrong turn, some misfortune may happen to the child, some sickness, some difficulty. But a mother's love is always present. For Those of us who our mothers are still with us Uh, That love, that love is present and that love should be acknowledged today in a special way. First and foremost, by thanking Almighty God for the gift of our mothers. Those that have the opportunity to attend Mass, Mass as a family, and to thank Almighty God for the gift of mothers, for wives who are able to become mothers, Also, we thank Almighty God for the gift of our mothers who have died. Our mothers are no longer with us. We pray and hope that our mother is with the Lord, continually praying for us in the very presence of God, that enduring love is not ended by death. It's only transfigured into a deeper and more profound way. For mothers who pray on earth, are now able to pray in the very presence of God for what is good and best for their children, such as the love of mothers, the enduring faithful love. And so we lift up our mothers who have passed unto the Lord today, that they are in the very presence of God, beholding God's divine face, radiant with light and eternal life. And one day we hope to be reunited with our mother in heaven. And of course, we turn to the Blessed Mother, the mother of us all, the new Eve, the new mother of all creation, and each and every one of us. Today is a special day. It is a day in which we call to mind the importance of the role of women in life, the role of women that have played significant parts in our own lives. That's a great gift from Almighty God. And in our reading from the Gospel of Saint Matthew, we read about the Annunciation where Mary is uh, told by the angel that she is to indeed conceive and bear a son, Conceive a child, and this child, this son of yours, will be named Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Mary is confused and troubled, but in the Holy Spirit, she surrenders to that, accepts that role in salvation history. And it is the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah the virgin shall be with child and give birth to a son and they shall call him Emmanuel. God is with us. And of course, on the cross, God is for us in Christ. So let us today, whether our mothers are living or dead, and alive in the Lord, commend them to the Lord and be ever grateful for the gift of mothers and almighty God's gift to us on this special day, God bless our mothers, each and every one of them, and may they continue their witness of God's love present among us. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Mastry, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Monday, of the fourth week of Easter, May the 9th. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Acts 11, 1 through 18. We have been traveling through the history of the early church through the Acts of the Apostles written by St. Luke, in which we are offered a window into the life and the beginnings really of the early church right after Pentecost and the activity of the Acts of the Apostles, mainly Peter and Paul and their associates. And as the church begins to expand and to grow beyond the region of uh, Jerusalem and into surrounding areas and even into other parts of the world, other nations, other peoples, as they begin to expand with all expansion comes the question of accommodation how do you fit uh, and how do people of different backgrounds cultures different experiences different religious influences how do they fit into the life of the church and the gospel of jesus christ and naturally some conflict and controversies began to arise as they do in this morning's reading. What happens is that the Gentiles are beginning to preach, are beginning to hear the preaching of the gospel, and they are coming into the church. They're coming into the community of faith. And there are some Jews who are objecting to this because the Gentiles have not been circumcised. They are not following the old Mosaic law, which the apostles have indicated is no longer in effect. The new law has come in the person and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so controversy begins to arise. And so they come to Peter and they say, look, these uh, Gentiles have not been circumcised and uh, we understand that you entered the house of the uncircumcised and you ate with them, which would make Peter unclean according to the old law. And so Peter begins by telling them that he had received a vision from Almighty God. And in that particular vision, uh, a huge tent came down from heaven, huge tent, held on the four corners by four angels. We hear that expression today, under the big tent. Where did that image come from? Well, it comes right here from the Bible. Has So many of the images that we use today, we don't know where they came from, but they came from the Bible. They came from Scripture. And God sends down this big tent. And underneath the tent are all kinds of animals. And the Lord tells Peter to sacrifice them and uh to eat them, and Peter says, I, I can't do that they, they, they're not clean, and nothing has impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth and uh the voice from heaven says, What God has purified, you are not to call unclean. God has purified these animals. there's no better." no deeper uh, cleansing and purification than God himself. And so if God has purified these animals, how much more are those, the Gentiles, who are coming into the big tent? God has purified them. They have accepted the gospel. They have accepted the teaching uh, uh, that Christ is the Son of God, is the Savior, and you are not to exclude them. And so Peter goes to them, and he relates this particular vision and tells the people that. And uh, he he says that God has purified these animals, so the Holy Spirit has come upon the Gentiles. They are now followers of Christ. They are to be accepted and welcomed into the community. And Peter says, I remember when the Lord said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And if God was giving them the same gift he gave us when we first believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to interfere with him? In other words, we at one time did not believe. We did not believe in Jesus, in the gospel. But through the Holy Spirit, we became believers. Well, if God did that to us, shouldn't we do that to the Gentiles who are coming in? In other words, share the very same gift, the same welcoming that we receive by the hand of God. then we are to extend that to others just as we have received and not exclude them or say that, well, you have to go through the whole law. The law doesn't save anymore. It is belief in the person of Christ and in the gospel. And when the people hear this from Peter, they stop objecting and instead begin to glorify God in these words. If this be so, then God has granted life-giving repentance even to the Gentiles. So Peter gave them a beautiful lesson, and us as well today. We're so worried about including and excluding who's part of, who's outside, who's gifted, who's not. If it's the work of God, we ought to do what the people uh, at Peter's time did, we ought to raise our voices in glory and praise to Almighty God. Stop objecting and welcome all of those who may be somewhat different than us, have a different background. If God is working in them and through them, glory to God for that, and to see that as another manifestation of God's mercy that he has shown us. We too were once far off, We, too, were once outside, but by the working of the Holy Spirit, we have become part of the living body of Christ. And what we should be doing is every day trying by our words, by our example, by our prayer, to welcome more and more into God's universal tent because God wants all people's all nations, each and every one of us, to be part of that great tent of salvation. God does not take delight in people who refuse to come in, to come under the tent, people who stay outside. God, again and again and again, wants to expand the tent, widen the tent more and more, till Christ is all in all. So let us today be very uh, universal in our approach. Welcome those who were once far off. Win our brothers and sisters to come into the tent to be hospitable and welcoming all to the glory of God. For we recognize in them what we once were outside, But now, by the grace of God, we too are part of the living body of Christ. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Mastry, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Tuesday of the fourth week of Easter, May the 10th. Our reading this morning comes to us, and it is a crucial reading. From the end of St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 17, we find ourselves right in the midst of a great spiritual warfare, not the warfare in the Ukraine or some other hot spot around this world. It is a spiritual warfare, it is the warfare between good and evil, and all of us are involved. There is no absent without leave, there is no ability or excuse for standing on the sidelines or withdrawing, there is no conscientious objection. We must engage this particular struggle and this particular war that is taking place. During the past several days and over the weekend, we have witnessed the tremendous presence of evil in our world. We have spoken many times over the past year about the spiritual warfare in which we find ourselves engaged. And unfortunately and tragically, many dismiss such talk as simply uh, talk of fundamentalism, Talk of religious superstition, ah, uh, there's no such thing as the evil one, no such thing as Satan at work in the world. The devil is never as pleased as when we believe that none of that is true that it's all just part of some bygone era, but in our modern, enlightened world, we have no need of such things. That is a great power, perhaps the greatest power, the power to not believe in the reality of evil. And yet what we have witnessed in the past several days is a manifestation of the tremendous intensity of evil taking place. People desecrating churches, interrupting religious services, Catholic and Protestant. It is a war against Christianity specifically against the catholic church and religious leaders people of good faith good will must raise their voices and not be silent during this particular time public officials unfortunately have been silent have been shamefully silent in this great evil that is taking place and have given the impression that they either support it or they're indifferent to it. Either way, it is a a tragic example, a tragic cooperation with the very evil that is taking place. St. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, addresses this, and it's a reading that we should read again and again because we find these words so pertinent to us today. St. Paul says, Finally draw your strength from the Lord and from his mighty power. Put on the armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the tactics of the devil. The tactics of the devil, deceit, dismissal, division, hatred, scattering violence destruction death that's what the devil is about for our struggle is not with flesh and blood but with the principalities with the powers with the world rulers of this present darkness which the evil spirits in the heavens inspire this is, this is clearly from the, pages, from the words of St. Paul in Scripture. And this is important. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against earthly realities. It is against spiritual forces that are very present in the world today. Simply turn on your television, read your newspaper. We see it in our churches this past Sunday. Terrible desecrations taking place and that must be resisted therefore put on the armor of God that you may be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything to hold your ground to hold your ground so stand fast with your Loins girded in truth, clothed with righteousness as a breastplate, and you feel defeat feet ready for the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, hold faith as a shield to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god the soul of the the sword of the spirit which is the word of god we have that beautifully said powerfully said and very very importantly said by st paul in all circumstances hold faith as a shield don't abandon the faith drunk or weary, and faint-hearted. Stand firm against the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And how do we do that? The most powerful weapon we have is prayer. Yes, prayer. Not nuclear weapons, not police, not riot gear. Not all of that stuff. Because we are not fighting against flesh and blood. We are fighting against the evil one. With all prayer and supplication, pray at every opportunity in the Holy Spirit. To that end, be watchful with all perseverance and supplication for all the holy ones. Pray for one another. Support one another. Encourage one another. We pray for the conversion of those who are in the grip of the evil one. If you see the hatred in their face, the the tremendous venom and anger, it's not of this world. It's not of this world that we may have the courage to open our mouths, to pray and to speak, to witness, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, St. Paul says which I am an ambassador, so that I may have the courage to speak as I must. The courage to speak as we must. And that is very important. And this is the time for religious leaders and all leaders, all those in authority, to step forward and to denounce this evil. And more than denounce, encourage and support those who are resisting resisting this evil, we are in a battle for life itself. This, this desire to uh, disrespect human life with abortion, the killing of the innocent, 64 million children, 64 million, just think of that, have been killed since Roe v. Wade went into effect. 64 million lost lives, 64 million lives that will not make a contribution, will not see the dawn of a day, will not get married, have children, families, go to school, make contributions to society. That that will not happen because of our desire to abort, And in some quarters, this is the most important thing, the killing of life. But as St. Pope John Paul uh, produced in his encyclical, Evangelium Vitae, the gospel of life, God is the God of life, and we are to be the people of life. In all of its manifestations, from the moment of conception to the point of natural death, And each and every one of us is precious because we're made in the image and likeness of God. And the destruction of one life is one too many. So let us at this time engage. Let us in time, in this time, this time where there is no neutrality, there's no standing on the sidelines and simply observing as a detached spectator We must be involved. So let us arm ourselves with the shield of faith, stand firm against the arrows of the evil one, and let us have the courage to speak as we must the gospel of life. Let us dare with great courage to proclaim the God who is life and to encourage one another To witness and to pray each day that the evil one may be restrained, rejected, and driven out. And God's covenant of life and eternal life will take root throughout the whole of God's creation. God bless you.